If anyone's got any any questions for us that you want to ask, you can win yourself a uh, a white box, a prize of or some sort. They're gonna pass it. They've got microphones that they're gonna bring around. So raise your hands. See, people like There's raising one. their hands. There's one. There's one. Hi, uh, my name is Kate Connolly. I'm a first year PhD student in environmental health. Uh, my question slash comment and suggestion, kind of all wrapped in one, is about blue zones. And whether about, about blue what? zones, blue zones, blue like the color. I see you guys don't necessarily know what those are. So blue zones I'm are hot pockets. I do. Uh, hot pockets in the world oh, where people po- live. We know hot over, pockets. Right, hot over pockets are delicious. No, 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 no. no, no she's not, not talking about the freezer section. Oh. Uh, where people live, um, you know, the highest rates of like octogenarians, nonagenarians, centenarians, right? And National Geographic last year did um, a whole magazine. On the on blue zones, right? And someone had written a book, and then they did in the magazine, um, and they had five. I'll tell you all because I just read it recently. Um, Wait, so 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 sorry. So a blue oh, zone so is a place where people these live people a lot longer. Live longer. Live I got longer. It. I got yeah. It. Okay. So and lower rates of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, all the kind of health effects that you were discussing today. So the ones are in um, Ikaria, Greece. I'm Greek, so. It's funny when you mention the Greek word. Um, Ikaria, Greece, Okinawa, Japan, Loma Linda, California. Loma Linda, California? Yes. Seventh-day Adventist population. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's Sardinia, Italy, and then somewhere else. Oh, um, in Central America. Are are these all very sort of genetically um, homogeneous places? Probably, yeah. Um, But they, you know, these people, like, eat a lot of legumes and vegetables and low meat diets frequently, but not necessarily always. So um, in relation to what you said about the other study that looked at fruits and vegetables and legumes and how that was, you know, kind of high carb but longer life, that kind of was what they mentioned a lot in this uh, magazine and probably in the book too. Yep. So I don't really think I have a question. I just wanted <laughs> to ask if you is? knew about it <laughs> and also to suggest it because, um, you know, I think it's very enlightening reading about it and how even the diets with, between the blue zones are different too. So they talked about one of the biggest one of the biggest cases they always talk about is this man who um, was diagnosed with lung cancer, given like a few months to live in the United States, and he said he wanted to live the rest of his life on from his island, Ikaria in Greece, Western Greece, and he went back there and lived 35 years. Mm. Cancer went away. He went back to his life, like went back to that kind of living off the land and taking care of. I didn't make that up. (laughs) You can look up New York Times everywhere. All right, we'll look into it. <laughs> Go ahead, Don. Matt, what's your what's your favorite expression? Uh, the plural of of anecdote is not data. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta I, be careful with that one. I, I think I, I mean it's interesting. I, I I'm curious and I'd want to learn more. But uh, I I I certainly I mean I've certainly heard of populations where you know where genetic factors and and uh, dietary factors come together to produce longer than average lifespan. So I'm I'm intrigued. Yeah, but I, I am. <laughs> True to my nature, skeptical as well. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about this in in in, in reverse, uh, without knowing anything about these blue zones. But um, you know, Massachusetts has what three three hundred and change towns in it, yeah. And so, like, if if you do a regression analysis looking at you know wit, you know or a, a, like a, a binomial calculation, excuse me, man, looking to see. Thank you for the apology. Looking at the association with 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 uh, with, with cancer in different towns, every year you will find that there is one or two towns where the cancer rates seem to be really, 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 really hot. 
and you could spend a lot of time chasing that to try to explain it. But if you came back five years later, you'd find that it was somewhere else, um, and that this is what's called random assortment. Yeah, that that implies that, that happens. That, well, that, that implies happens. that that observation is due to chance, and that right. observation that could sound. actually be real. And it could be. It's it really it's be. a matter of, of of an observation like that being the basis for the generating catalyst. a hypothesis it, that you then yeah. can test. It could be, but it's also possible that blue zones are just what is called the third standard deviation. Sure. Of an, of, it could of be random. Either. I mean, we just don't yeah. know. It'll be interesting to find out. We just don't know. Somebody has a... to be. So. Um, my question is, uh, what's your favorite part about making the podcasts? Oh. Oh, that's tough. The wacky science. Yeah, it's it's um, I you know, I like all the different components. I like the, the three different segments, but uh, certainly we probably uh. uh Make ourselves laugh most with the last one. I would certainly, certainly. I don't know if I came across, but the three of us are pretty good friends. And during the course of our normal workday, we don't get a whole lot of time to spend together. And I think it's really fun for us just yeah. to be able to hang out together for about ninety minutes. And and we do a lot of a lot of time a lot of yeah, time really laughing. laughing. It's really pleasant. Yeah. yeah, the whole thing is pretty fun. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name's Jessica. I graduated from the MPH program in 2014. Hello, um, Jessica. I, hi, Chris. Uh, I have two quick questions. Um, the first one's for Dawn, and it goes back to the nutrition study. Um, and you talked a lot about diet recollection and, and the problems with that as a data collection tool, but do you think it tends to always be wrong in the same direction? And if so, does it matter that it's wrong? Um, and then quick Great question, question for Chris about um, the open review process at BMJ, and that sounds great, and you say it leads to fewer cheap shots, but is that what we want, or do we just want them to take better shots, and is that incentivized by an open review process? Great questions. Yeah, great questions. Um, I I don't know the answer to that question, but I can imagine how um, people could have could consider the socially desirable answer. And if, in fact, people um, are have a tendency to give a socially desirable answer to a question questioner, then that would imply that there is, in fact, a bias in one direction as opposed to another. I mean, I, th I think the point of your question, and I think, Matt, you were asking that before, is if there is, in fact, um, inaccuracy, wouldn't it just be random inaccuracy over time? And it would, it would just sort of, it would sort of cancel itself out. But in the setting of a situation where there might be, in fact, um, social desirability bias, that wouldn't necessarily be the case. Wait, wait, can, can I can I just jump onto this because I, I you know it's uh, part of the reason I love the question is it's it's one of the things that we want to do with this this podcast series is try and educate people on how to think about these particular issues. And it really you know there's only so much time and and we can we can uh, devote to these particular topics, but. But one of the one of the things that does drive me a little nuts is uh, is when people say, "Well, there's you know you couldn't have measured it that well, therefore it is wrong." And we know that when you measure things poorly, you get the wrong answer. But the question is, which direction does that bias go? And often they go in predictable directions. And we can often actually, I mean, we have methods to actually quantify this. And so being thoughtful about not just dismissing things, but being thoughtful about the implications, which is what I was trying to go with this but we, we you know there's it's it's very hard to do when you're just sort of conversing with somebody but it's a great question one one thought i i have sort of often wondered is um, given the, the this whole issue about social desirability bias and, or the the healthy user effect uh, where you know people who 
are healthy by nature and are exposed to healthy memes in the media and therefore want to do these things that are perceived to be healthy so they can be healthier. Um, even if those things have no effect or might even be slightly harmful, they're going to appear to be beneficial on a, in an epidemiologic study because of this bias that's built into the, the fact that they are healthier on average than the people who don't follow these memes. So could one not design a study where you objectively measured the... Um, the faith in different memes of different populations, like, you know, the proportion of people who believe that carrots will prevent cancer or will prevent heart disease fervently and measured the strength of those beliefs as opposed to people who had no opinion whatsoever or believed the opposite and then ran your epidemiologic studies around an adjustment for those memes to see if you could wash out the healthy user bias so that people who thought that carrots were really bad because they cause cancer or cause heart disease should have exactly the opposite effect of the people who believe it because it's the anti-healthy oh, user oh, bias. Oh, oh, oh. So why not actually, so you're to actually directly estimate measure that effect were... and try to take that account into your regression analysis to see if you can if you can pull that out sure. and show what what the magnitude of those biases is. I thought you were going to I thought you were trying to say we ask people questions at the end of the survey like do you believe in Bigfoot and then if they say yes then we No 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 I'm, I'm thinking you like things that you would do to be healthy like you know there was a, a fad that people would take lots of vitamin E and we now that known vitamin E does not have a beneficial effect on heart disease for example mm. um, but you know actually getting back to yeah, the, the study I, I we did today one of the things I thought was was a, a strength of this is that the geographic diversity should wash out many of these memes because memes are probably very culturally linked and so if you start to see them consistently across different cultures that would make you tend to believe that maybe it's the biology or the, there's an actual biological effect as opposed to the healthy user effect. Right. That, I mean, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? It, it made me so wonder. But it would be great question. to be able to measure that. It was a second question. Oh, right. Uh, cheap shots versus better shots? Was that the question? Yep. Um, gosh, heck, I don't know. I mean, it, it certainly makes me more choosy in the words I use. Chris can be ornery. Um, and I think it makes cranky. me a cranky. little more thoughtful in my reviews um, when I know that the people who I'm reviewing know who I am. Um, and I, I also know that the other reviewers know who I am. And there's, there's certainly a, a, a desire not to look like a ding-dong uh, in my review and say Technical something really term. stupid uh, in my review and then be caught out by my peers who would say, man, that was a, that was a zinger, huh? Dr. Gill, he's getting soft. Um, so I think it makes me, it certainly makes me try harder to get it right. Whereas I think I can be a little more casual uh, yeah. When I'm, you know, under stress, and maybe it's a lower tier journal, hint um, <laughs> that I might go a little faster we'll than let it I go. would if someone's we'll watching me carefully for a high tier journal. Wow. I, I think it does change my behavior. Okay. I don't All know. right. Hi. So, kind of going off um, the sort of fad with like the whole nutrition and health studies in the last like few years, I've noticed, especially through media and different like celebrities promoting these different lifestyles of. Uh, less of carbs, more of meats, et cetera. Uh, from a scientific standpoint, how do you differentiate these false um, and crazy? Like you had mentioned that there's so many different reports from the Atlantic or New York Times, et cetera. So what are some advice from differentiating and being able to relay these messages to others about? Well, oh, one, one of our strategies is to start a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's our only strategy, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. I, don't, I, I don't know. I think it's a really good question, and I think that there is a real tidal wave of disinformation, fake news, fake science, and I think that we're really under assault now more than ever, not only by Gwyneth Paltrow and Dr. 
Dr. What's his Oz. Oz, who happens to graduate from the same medical school I did. Um, Higher or lower yeah, so, than you? Did he do better or worse than you? I don't know. I don't know how he did. Yeah. Um, Pass-fail system, wasn't it? But, as a matter of fact, it was. Uh, in any event, I, th I think it, we're at a real uh, crossroads, and I think that we, we as public health specialists and as scientists have to be vigilant about bringing what we think is the truth to the people who are not as well versed in all the scientific method and all the you know all the things that go into producing good evidence and good data it's it, it you know for for us and for you from now on this is part of your responsibility in terms of being a public health practitioner we have to we have to keep the dialogue going Hi, um, hey this is a quick question regarding the academic uh, lifestyle in the sense of producing more and more publications for like moving further along in the career. So I've noticed like some individuals tend to have numerous publications, whether or not it's for their quality or just helping them within their institution to get up higher. So I'm wondering if the trend is moving towards producing better quality and maybe less throughout a career rather than quantity. No, I think I think that the tendency is in exactly the opposite direction. I think the tendency is that there is a there there is a plethora of new journals, and in fact, it's become a, a, a huge problem because there are there are a whole bunch of because it's, because when when the the business model switched over to the authors paying for their papers to be published, and the the industry realized that this is a very lucrative business model, we are getting inundated all the time by requests to publish articles in journals that we've never heard of. They call them predatory journals. So that's adding, I think, to this, to this whole problem. I, th I, th I think that there are people who shall remain unnamed. Me? Who tend, no, oh. not you. Present company excluded. <laughs> oh, thank you. Who, who tend to do that, who tend to really publish as many papers as they can. And that has a dilutive effect in terms of the regard with which you are held by your by your by your peers and by the uh, you know the uh, appointments and promotion committees that if you've got a lot of publications that aren't very impactful in, in low tier journals and haven't had many citations that's going to be a disservice for you in your career I, mm -hmm. I, I would just say that we we don't we didn't exactly take that topic on 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 one of the one of the podcasts that has yet to be released but we we, we got into the issue of predatory journals and the impact that that has on on some of the science but maybe that is a, a topic actually we should sort of take on directly in one of our second segments yeah, i think we should yeah because we get we get you know five or six solicitations a day yeah this is more, more questions than we're Hi. usually asked in class um, I know. my name is maria we have i just incentives. graduated hello maria oh, you go it's <laughs> okay um i just graduated in may um, congratulations kind of congratulations Sorry? Congratulations. Well, thank you. Um, kind of building off of that question, so they say you need maybe more publications, a more like full resume in order to get to the point where you can conduct one of these trials. How do you get there without putting all this like, I can't think of a better way for it, like BS science, like BS papers. Like how do you get yourself up there without doing that? Really good question. It's not an easy time to to be trying to to get into the academic world. I I think probably though the best thing that you can do is have really good mentorship. Uh, finding somebody who will you know 
take you on and help you get through the process of getting involved in really good data sets that already exist because you know when you're when you're first starting out you can't just go out and run a giant randomized trial as you say you've got to uh, initially be taken on by somebody who's doing that and supporting you and that's what helps you build a build your reputation uh, I also think you know being good at what you do also does you know get rewarded at some point but it, it does take you know getting the equivalent of whatever the equivalent of getting your foot in the door is you know with funding agencies and 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 publications so uh, mentorship i think is the biggest one i would say i think the other thing is, just in terms of considering the arc of your total academic career is to think about going deep instead of going broad um, because you'll have a tendency to gain that kind of momentum in terms of the work that you do, and then you'll get known for that work. And and unfortunately, in academics, success begets success. It's easier for you to be successful once you're successful. It's hard getting to that first step. And I agree with Matt that find somebody that's got a, a great study that you can help out with, and then, then you get associated with that topic, and then it's easier for you to then take that topic to the, to the next level. But in terms of looking at the, um, the, the arc of your career, don't don't be the master of all trades and you know or the, what is it what is how does that first jack, jack of all trades and master of none really try to focus in on one or two things um going back to the dietary study to switch gears yep. um this is just out of curiosity i know that you pointed out that there were factors like genetics that weren't considered in the study um when you're going through in the dietary studies or anything that you've read in the past have you come across uh, the consideration of someone uh, who changed their diet multiple times throughout their life course and the repercussions that that could have. So not necessarily crash court, like crash dieting, but if you're going to have a high carb diet and then switch to a high fat diet and what that has on health outcomes. No nope. idea. No. And I, I would say that, 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 you know, if you look at the, the literature that just looks at, you know, how much are you consuming of X, Y, and Z, we can't even get that straight, let alone trying to get it straight what, what the impacts of, of various different nutritional programs over a lifetime would actually be. It's so complicated, and I just think we have, we have so little handle on this. And, and you know, it's, in my courses, we talk about this a lot. One of the biggest problems I think is have is we don't know what the question is we're trying to ask yet. So you're asking a very clear question. No study is answering that question. And, and the only way to really answer that question would be to, to, to find people who did that over a lifetime or run a trial where you got people to do that, which would probably be unethical, but you know, something that, was, that had just a very well-defined protocol of what you want people to be doing, and then we could test whether or not it, it works. And I, we just, we're not even close. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think the, the, the more um, scientifically rigorous way to get, a, get at that, unfortunately, which is not a satisfying way, uh, would be with animal studies where you yank them from one extreme diet to another extreme diet and you study them and you could do that in mice over problem is that mice are not men, you know, so it only gets you so far, but I, I, I can't really imagining an observational epidemiologic study, which would not have the same biases built into it because you, the first question you would ask is why are people lurching from one diet to another? Is that because they're following health memes because they're health conscious people? And right away, the fact that they're doing this is telling you about the people rather than about what the people are doing. And that is, a, that is you, just, you just can't get past that. Every time it's the same problem. You're stuck on the healthy user effect. So. Hi, uh, so I just have a quick question about journals again. Um, so I know Randy Sheckman, after he, after he got his novel and like published in the top tier journals, he started pushing for people to publish, publish in like open access or 
open source journals. And I was wondering in terms of like the journal impact score, do you see people starting to go to more towards those type of journals where like other people can access the data easily as well? Or is there more still a tendency, tendency to go to like science, nature, cell, like those larger journals rather than going for it? From, from, from an academic standpoint, um, any academic, if, if, if you have an opportunity to publish in Cell, Science, Nature, New England Journal of Medicine, or Lancet, you will definitely go there first. Um, but I, but we, we have a tendency actually to go towards the open access journals because, because in global health, the populations that we want to reach are populations that don't mm -hmm. necessarily have the ability to, to pay the huge costs of subscribing to Nature, Science, New England Journal of Medicine. So... We, we kind of sacrifice a little bit of that to a certain extent um, just so that so that the intended audience has access to the to the, to the work that we do but you see it's it's one of these sort of um, um, instances where you're punished you know, no no good deed ever goes unpunished right because the you know the, the, the business model of an open access journal is that rather than the journal um, absorbing all the costs of publication and the you know supporting the review process and the editors and the staff et cetera, through you're through selling subscriptions and selling advertisements uh, inscriptions to pharmaceutical companies, you know to get rid of that conflict of interest around the advertising in particular, they flip the business model and have the cost of publication put upon the authors. So now I pay to be in the open access or you know, typically you know a couple thousand dollars per article. So it's it's a lot of money. You might say that's you know that's unfair, but the price we're paying is, as Don says, it's, it's to provide access in, in places where people wouldn't necessarily be able to pay for journals. But the, 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 the unintended consequence is that, is, is that it created this new business model that was fantastically attractive to predatory journals who are almost all open access journals for the same reason, that you can now pay in one of many, you know, five, 10,000 essentially vanity journals, uh, a hefty fee to, be, to have your, your paper published with basically no peer review whatsoever. And still it shows up on your resume. So, drat. So you mentioned that there are two studies um, from the same um, nutrition study that came out and had different um, results. And one was widely covered in the media and one was not. Do you have any um, thoughts about why that was? Why one was covered sure. and one, why one was not? And also, <laughs> well, wait, so one was I, sexier. Can, wait, wait, wait. Can I just clarify? They, they were not totally contradictory so much as yeah. they sort of told different pieces of the story. Right. And the the second one really looked at the the breakdown of of where people are getting their their carbs. Yeah, and, but come on, Matt. I mean, she's right. I mean, she's put her <laughs> finger right on it. You have a study that says that it doesn't really matter so much if you eat legumes, versus fats are good for you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I no, mean, no. I'm not, which I'm one not, got not, more press? I'm not arguing <laughs> one, over one, not, one's dad's study, the other's mom's study. Yeah, right. I'm not arguing over over why the, of why one got the the so much attention and one didn't so much as I'm just saying. They were not necessarily contradictory studies from the same data set, but but I agree with Chris. I mean, I, I and and this is the this is the first uh, second topic segment that we took on in the podcast that's been now been released. Is why do why do the media pick up on what they pick up on? And you know, so much of what the the media is primed to pick up are the the odd study, the odd finding that is most likely to be false, or the thing that is just we all want to be true, or like, Something like, that's gonna like, you know like chocolate and atrial fibrillation. Right. Yes, <laughs> as opposed to yet again, asparagus is not associated with cancer. Yeah, <laughs> boring. Yeah. And could I ask a quick follow-up? So yeah. It is. Oh my god. 
who knew? Stop it. Do you have any advice for researchers at the beginning of their career to kind of cooperate with media and reclaim the narrative of this is the full context of my research? Um, let me help you communicate it in the best way. Both studies, not just one. No, I don't. You always have advice, Don. Uh, I've not been uh, successful on that on that front. Don I, does, though. I, Don does a lot of this. Not a whole lot. No. Um, I think that the press is really interested in general in the work that we do. And I think that they sometimes have difficulty finding scientists who are willing to actually talk to them. And I think the more we talk to them and the more open that, that we are, the more we can help them report on stuff accurately. Um, but but it's, it's still a dilemma. It really is because they want to sell their stories. They, you know, they want to get as many clicks. They want to sell as many, you know, magazines and newspapers as, as possible. And it's really the, you know, it's the more dramatic, sexy stuff that, that, that tends to sell that stuff. No more? I think we're all right. We're good. Thank all right. you all so much. Thank you all so much for coming. We really, really appreciate it. We hope you uh, download and listen to the podcast and tell your friends. <laughs>